Well, my first summer in seminary, I took a reading seminar on Jonathan Edwards, America's greatest theologian. And the first book we read was his personal narrative, which is his autobiographical account of his conversion to Christ and of the immediate and enduring difference that this made in his life. He says, the first that I remember of that sort of inward sweet delight in God and divine things was on reading those words from 1 Timothy 1.17. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and forever. Amen. And as I read these words, there came into my soul and as it were diffused throughout it, a sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense quite different from anything I ever experienced before. And I thought with myself, how excellent a being that was and how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up to him in heaven and be as it were swallowed up in him. And ever after the appearance of everything was altered, there seemed to be as it were a calm, sweet cast of divine glory in everything. God's excellency, His wisdom, His purity and love seemed to appear in everything, in the sun, the moon, and the stars, in the clouds, and the blue sky, in the grass, the flowers, the trees, and the water, and all nature, which used greatly to fix my mind. And often I used to sit and view the moon for a long time, and in the daytime spent much time looking at the clouds and the sky to behold the sweet glory of God in these things singing forth with a low voice my contemplations and praise of my Creator and my Redeemer. Edwards came to Christ, and being a new creation in Christ, he began to look at all creation differently. And he saw it not just as the material world around him, but as the manifest handwork of a glorious God. And he said, when I was young, I used to be terrified above all else of thunderstorms. and They would frighten him into hiding in his bed. But then afterwards, he was able to hear in the rolling thunders the voice of God and to see in the flashing lightning the messengers as though angels sent forth. And when we are redeemed, when we are regenerate, we are intended to see the glory of God in all creation and to praise Him for all that He has made. So last week, we talked about the glory of God in His mighty deeds and His excellent greatness. Next week, we're going to praise God, our Redeemer, for delivering us from deadly sin and dire straits. But today we want to offer praise to God, the Creator, looking at His heavenly abode, all that He made beneath, and offering up our praise back up to the Maker and the Giver of all good things. And God inspired a particular psalm in our Bible, Psalm 104, in which the first occurrence of the Hebrew word hallelujah occurs, is the creation in responsive praise to the Creator. It's a long psalm that has six main sections praising God in His heavenly abode, praising God for establishing the earth, praising Him for His provisions of water, of food, of shelter, praising God for the earth's fecundity. Isn't that a delightful word we'll talk about? Praising Him for His sovereignty over life and death and regenerating dead lands into new life and praising and pleasing God forever and forever. Let's start with God in the heavens. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Uh, The psalmist begins not by addressing God, but by addressing himself. Because sometimes we have to tell ourselves to turn our eyes off ourselves onto our maker. We have to remind ourselves to turn our attention away from the world into the world's creator. And so he says to his soul, hey soul, wake up, bless God. And he does. His next word is to God. Oh Lord, my God, you are very great. 
And in most of your Bibles, that word Lord is in lower caps because that means the Hebrew text is Yahweh, a word too holy for the Hebrews to pronounce. So when it, the text reads Yahweh, they would stay and said Yadonai, or uh, Adonai. There's a phrase called Kathiv Kare, which means it is written, it is read. So the text would read Yahweh, but we would say Adonai unless we mispronounce the holy name of God. But our text puts it in lower caps so that we know that this is the personal covenantal name of God. This isn't just an impersonal deity. This isn't just a creative force. This isn't a life force that moves. This is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, the covenantal personal name that is revealed to his people. And the fact that he says, my God, lets us know that the psalmist is one of those covenantal people. Uh, this isn't just someone in Africa looking up and having impressive thoughts of creation. This is someone to whom God has revealed himself and made himself known, and now he responds to that creator. And he begins with God in his heavenly abode. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. Uh, these are kingly terms. And now he goes on to talk about the royal regalia of the king of the universe, who's invisible, but it says he covers himself with light as with a cloak. That when Moses asked to see the glory of God and God said, no man may see me and live, but I'll hide you in the cleft of the lock and hide you with my hand and you'll see the glory of my backside as I pass before you. And in the brilliance of the passing God, he saw the glory of his creator. And the psalmist looks up at the sunrise, the sunset, the sunshine, and he sees in the dazzling blinding light the garment, is the, the garment is though a royal robe that God wraps himself in. That when we look up at the sky and it's too bright to look into for long, we're to envision God putting on his cloak to make his invisible reality visible to his creation that we might praise him. And then he says that you stretch out your heaven like a tent curtain. He starts at the sun that's too brilliant to look at and then he sees all the heaven, the atmosphere above, and it's laid out as easily by God as a camper lays out a curtain in the middle of a tent. That the way you may zip up an interior wall or hang just a light partition, that's how easy it was for God to just roll out the heavens above, to wrap the earth in an atmosphere so that we could have air to breathe and weather around us. But this God doesn't just reside silent in his temple. He builds a palace above it. He says the heavens are just but the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. In other words, the firmament above, the clouds, that's just the foundation beams of the palace of God that rises beyond our vision. And God doesn't just stay aloof within. He's out and he's moving. And so as he looks up at the clouds, to his mind they are like chariots conveying God across his globe to remind us that God is always looking down upon us and that he walks upon the wings of the wind, reminding us of the ubiquity, the omnipresence of God. And then he says, he makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. So he feels the wind and he says, this could be like the fleeing or the, fl uh, the flying angels doing the bidding of their God in their brightness. And he sees the lightning bolts flashing in the cloud. And he imagines the angels bolting down to do the supreme will of their sovereign. So everything that he sees above reminds him of God. The sun, the atmosphere, the clouds, the wind, the lightning. 
all of which manifest the glory of the king of the universe who is our God. So my wife and I were in London one time and we were able to attend what is known as the Queen's Tattoo. And that doesn't refer to body art. Uh, a tattoo is a military parade with the royal regalia on full display to manifest the might of the empire. And so we watched these parading troops and all of their dress uniforms with the bands playing and the swords flashing to show the might of the Queen of England. And that's what he sees when he looks up the skies above. He sees in the sunlight the, the cloak of God. And he sees in the atmosphere the tint of his chambers that are just the foundation layer of a palace that goes beyond what the Hubble telescope can even begin to imagine. And he feels in the winds and he sees in the clouds the moving of God among his people because he's always present among us. And then he sees in the lightning and he feels in the wind the angelic messengers of God going to do the bidding of their sovereign. And then he turns his focus from heaven to earth. Look at verses 5 and following. He established the earth upon its foundations so that it will not totter forever and ever. So he sees the clouds in motion, the wind in motion, the lightning in motion, and he's struck by the relative stability of the earth. So the earth spins on its axis once every 24 hours at a rate of 1,376 miles per hour at the equator, hurtling like a top. Meanwhile, we are orbiting the sun in 365.25 days. That's a journey that takes 584 million miles, moving at a rate of 67,000 miles an hour. So imagine, if you will, we are right now spinning like a top at 1,376 miles an hour. And the planet as a whole is hurtling around the sun at 67,000 miles per hour. And yet none of us are clinging onto the benches for dear life. <laughs> we could even stand on one foot if we dare and talk at the same time because God has so fixed the physical forces of the universe so that we are stable, we are secure, and he praises God for the stability of the earth. That God then covers with a garment with the sea and then like a blanket, he peels back 30%. So God leaves 70% of the earth covered with ocean. And he peels back 30% like a blanket so dry land can emerge, so that life can live upon it. And the mountains rose and the valleys sank down to the place which you established for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass over, so that they will not return to cover the earth. So for the ancient Israelites, the sea was a fearsome thing. Uh, it could flood the land and you had remnant echoes of the flood of Noah and the devastation that occurred. Or it might be where the invading armies would land their ships and come mirage your territory. Or, in biblical language, the sea is that out of which the mythic beasts emerge to come and to sack and to plunder and to pillage. So the sea was a terrifying thing. But to the eyes of the psalmist, it just, it just does God's bidding. And when he raises his voice, they feel rebuked and chastened, they go to their boundaries and they stay in their coastlines and they stay wherever God tells them. And the mountains rise and the valleys form, not because of the just accidental sliding together of tectonic plates. And the valleys are more than just the erosion that occurs incidentally, but it's God, the grand architect, making the topography of the earth what he wants it to be. And so he looks at South America and raises up the Andes. 
and he looks to India and Asia and raises up the Himalayas, and Europe, the uh, Alps, and in America, the Rockies. And then he says, over here, I'm going to make a Grand Canyon. And just so that people like Alicia and the Underwoods can get there closer, I'm going to put the Paladura over here. And then over here in West Texas and Kansas and Nebraska, I'm going to make it flat by flat by flat by contrast so that you'll appreciate the elevations and the descents. But all of this is presenting God as this magnificent architect, shaping the earth exactly as it desires. And the highest mounts and the deepest depths and the most roiling of oceans all do the bidding of their maker. So great is our God. And having formed the topography of the earth, the psalm now goes on for its longest section to talk about God, the providential provider. He provides fresh water for his creation. He provides food for the animals. And he provides shelter for those living on the earth. Let's look at each of these. Verses 10 through 13. He sends forth springs in the valleys. They flow between the mountains. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They lift up their voices among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. And the earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works. God makes fresh water spring up from the earth, from underground aquifers and water tables. And then he also makes it come down from above in snow and sleet and rain. God makes water to exist in three different states, liquid, solid, and vapor. And then he invents this water cycle so that liquid water can evaporate and then rise up to the clouds and condensate and then descend again in precipitation. And then if it's frozen, it can melt and run. And God waters this planet so that all of us can have fresh water to live. And that's a miracle because all the oceans and all the seas are salt water. But God establishes this miraculous desalinization process so that even the animals on the upper reaches can drink their fill and be satisfied. And no one has described this as wonderfully as John Piper. And some of you have heard me read this before, and you deserve to hear it again. <laughs> Others are hearing it for the first time because I can't think of rain and not think of this passage. And so this is John Piper's reflection on the greatness of God demonstrated in the miracle of rain. Picture yourself as a farmer in the Near East, far from any lake or stream. A few wells keep the family and animals supplied with water, but if the crops are to grow and the family to be fed, water has to come from another source. Well, from where? Well, the sky. Water comes out of the clear blue sky? Well, not exactly. Water will have to be carried in the sky from the Mediterranean Sea over several hundred miles and then be poured out on the fields from the sky carried? How much does it weigh? Well, if one inch of rain falls on one square mile of farmland during the night, that would be 2.32 meters or cubic feet of water, 2.32 million cubic feet of water, which is 17,377,536 gallons, which is 144,735,360 pounds of water. Uh, that's heavy. How does it get up there and stay up there? By evaporation. You see, the water stops being water for a little while, so it can go up, not down. Well, then how does it come down again? Condensation. You see, the water starts becoming water again by gathering around little dust particles. Well, what about the salt? Salt? Yeah, the Mediterranean Sea is salt water, which will kill the crops. 
Well, the salt has to be taken out. Oh, so the sky picks up millions of pounds of water from the sea, takes out the salt, carries it for 300 miles, and then dumps it on the farm? Well, it can't dump it, it would crush the crops. So you see the sky dribbles millions of pounds of water in little drops big enough to fall for one mile, one mile without falling into evaporation aired again, but yet small enough not to crush the crops. How do they do that? Well, it's called coalescence. Specks of water start bumping into each other and they get bigger and bigger and when they're just big enough, they fall. Just like that? Well, not exactly, because they would just bounce off each other instead of joining up if there were no electric field present. What? Never mind, just take my word for it. Rain is one of the mighty miraculous works of our mighty miraculous God. And we saw that this morning. What just happened this morning is a miracle. And so every time we hear the rain, take a sip, turn on the faucet, we are to praise God the Creator for His wondrous work of providing water for His creation. He next goes on to talk about God's provisions. Look at verses 14 and 15. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle, vegetation for the labor of man, so that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine which makes man's heart glad, so that he may make his face glisten with oil, and food which sustains man's heart. God not only waters, but feeds his creation. And he doesn't just give us the minimum requirement. He doesn't just put us on a diet of bread and water. We don't just have meals ready to eat. God makes this wide array of grains and vegetables and fruits and he gives us the ingenuity to take these ingredients and to turn them into chocolates and casseroles and pizzas and God delights us with things so that our heart is glad. He doesn't just give water but grapes that could be made wine and then he doesn't just give that but he gives olive oil that makes our face glisten. In other words, such, God is such a good God that he gladdens our heart and fills our light with delightful things just because he loves us just because he delights in us. And all of these things, by the way, only occur on Earth of all the known planets or asteroids or comets or other floating pieces of rock out there. Only here does God do this because he's that great and he's that good. And then he also provides us a place to stay. The trees of the Lord, uh, of the Lord drink their fill, the cedars of Lebanon, which he planted. It has this image of God gardening, that what we view as the random falling of seeds is God planting these mighty cedars that he can't wait to watch grow up and delight us? The birds build their nests, and the storks whose home is the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge for the Shephanim, the rock badger. So in addition to fresh water and abundant, delightful food, God gives appropriate shelter for each animal. And so he gives mounds for ants and hives for bees and dens for foxes and lairs for lions and 26-foot mounds in Africa for termites. And he gives apartments for city dwellers and homes for suburbanites and double wides for those living in the countryside. And God gives everyone shelter. And so when you woke up this morning and you heard the rain pattering down but you didn't feel it on your face, that was the goodness and the grace of God who gives shelter to his creation. And so it's right that at the beginning of every meal, we pause to give thanks to God who gives us food, who gives us taste buds to enjoy all the delightful taste that he makes. And every time that we go home to our house, every time that we see the car dry and the furniture dry and ourselves dry, every time we feel a shiver and pull up another blanket, we give thanks to God who provides us our shelter. 
God is a good God, and therefore he is worthy of our praise because he provides us everything that we need. God also, in doing this, appoints the seasons so that he can take care of those animals that go out at night, the nocturnal creatures, as well as those that come out in the day, the diurnal creatures. Look at 19 through 23. He made the moon for the seasons. The sun knows the place of its setting. So he makes the moon wax gibbous and wane crescent. And he makes the sun rise and set in the east and the west as it moves up and down over the equator from the winter and the summer solstice. And God, in these forming of the seasons, appoints darkness to become night so that the beast of the forest can prowl about and the lions, the lions can roar for their God to give them food. And he does. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. And when the sun rises, they withdraw. They lie down in their dens. And while they go to sleep, we rise up, enter into our labor to bring forth food from the ground. And we labor until evening. And isn't it a kindness of God that he only gives us 24-hour days and only so many hours of daylight? Uh, there's been so many nights that I go to bed thinking, thank God this day is over. <laughs> and there, there were only so many hours to endure this day. But then to wake up in the hope of a new day tomorrow with fresh energy and revived spirits to go out anew and to labor for him. So God situates the seasons to take care of the nighttime creatures, the daytime creatures, to give us the food and the labor and the rest that we need. So good is our God. And this is an appropriate time to observe something really wonderful about this psalm. If you'll notice, we started in the heavens with the light, the, the sunlight. And then we went to the clouds and the atmosphere. And then we came to the oceans. And then we came to the land. And then we came to the, the sky and the sea creatures. And then the land creatures. And then we saw the giving of the sun and the moon and the stars and the seasons. And what is this beginning to sound remarkably like? It's the six days of creation in the Genesis account. That what the psalmist is doing is walking us through the six days of creation, starting with a God in the heavens that in the beginning there was light. And then he separated the waters above from the waters below. Then he separated the land from the sea. And then he made the moon and the sun for their seasons. And then he brought out, he's walking us through Genesis, praising his God at every stage so that we would be reminded afresh of the goodness and the greatness of our God and his creation. Now look at verse 24. Praising God for the earth's fecundity. Uh, fecundity means fertility fruitfulness. Uh, I, can't, I couldn't think of another word. This is the chapter title in a delightful book by Annie Dillard called Pilgrim at Tinker, uh, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. It's kind of a modern day Walden. And she goes and lives in this uh, countryside setting to just appreciate a fresh creation. She has an entire chapter dedicated to the unbelievable fertility of the land and the fruitfulness of creation and the fecundity of our life. O oh Lord, how many are your works? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. There's the sea, great and broad, swarms without number, animals small and great, the ships moving along Leviathan, which you have formed a sport in it. More than one million plant species have been identified so far, and this doesn't include lichens, fungi, and algae, and more are discovered every year. There are more than 240,000 species of marine life and around 10,000 types of birds, more of which have been discovered 
every year. Among the land animals and insects, 8.7 million species have been identified, and biologists and entomologists estimate that this is probably 15% of the total yet to be discovered and labeled. Isn't that amazing? Among the insects, a honeybee hive has 20 to 60,000 bees. A fire ant colony, if it has multiple queens, so fire ants can either have a single queen or multiple queen colonies. In a multiple queen colony, there can be 40 million ants per acre. And if you go home and get a spoon and scoop up a spoonful of dirt, biologists estimate that there are 50 billion microbes, microscopic bacteria and other amazing entities swirling around in a single tablespoon of dirt. It's unimaginable. Our minds can't get around it. And God not only made all these, God not only had the creativity to invent all these, God makes each one distinctive and individual. They're not cloned. They're not replicated. They're not just spitting off the copy machine. Everyone is distinct. Everyone is unique, such as the glory and the grandeur and the greatness of our God. So whenever you see a cute kitten or a devoted puppy or a fleet horse, or especially when we hold a new life, uh, the Suttons just had their new granddaughter born last week, we should praise God the Creator who gives life in such marvelous, <laughs> ingenious, distinctive, individual identities and in such numbers. So great is our God. And God is sovereign over their life and death. Look at 27 through 30. They all wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give to them and they gather it up. You open your hand, they're satisfied with good. You hide your face, they're dismayed. You take away their spirit, they expire. They return to the dust. You send forth your spirit and they are created. You renew the face of the ground. God is sovereign over the creation, the sustaining, and the renewal of life. Uh, there is a creature called the Greenland shark that lives three to five centuries. The mayfly has a 24-hour lifespan. But long or short, God decrees how long each exists. Human beings, 70 years, or if by strength, 80 years, the psalm says. But God is sovereign over the life of each. Every living creature, God gave it that life. When it expires, God took its breath. And then when a fire devastates a land or when there just seems to be no hope of life again, God can send His Spirit like a breath and renew it like a valley of dry bones and it'll spring to life again. So in the, 18th, in the 17th century, there was a Frenchman named Nicholas Herman who at the age of 18 in the winter looked out his window at a tree that had been stripped of its leaves and as he saw those barren branches, he began to think in a couple months that they were going to green and bloom and blossom and bear fruit. And it struck him, what an amazing God that from death can bring life and that every spring he gives us this reminder of his ability to bring life to dead things. And he said in that moment, he fell into such a deep and abiding love for God that he never recovered from it of the life-giving, life-sustaining, life-renewing God. And so he became a monk, and he took the name Brother Lawrence. And he wrote the most wonderful book on prayer written in 2,000 years of the church, The Practice of the Presence of God. 
and it started with him on a winter as a teenager staring at a bare branch and being impacted with the truth that God brings life to dead things. So when we see the spring occur and the blossoms and the blooms and the greens and the fruit, we should praise God the Creator who gives, sustains, and renews life. Then look at verses 31 and following. Let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Let the Lord be glad in His works. He doesn't just look at the creation and say, what a marvelous creation. He looks beyond it to the Creator. Because when we look up at the brightness of the sun and the marvel of the clouds, we're not to pause there, but to look at the Creator and to marvel at Him and to praise Him. And when we see the wonders of fresh water and abundant food and shelter, we're not just to enjoy these things, we're to look beyond them and to extend our love and our praise to their Creator. And when we see life given and life sustained and life taken away and life renewed, we're to praise God who's behind all of these things. Um, when we were at the Jazz Fest last week and we walked through some of the art galleries and they had these beautiful photographs of nature scenes, coastal scenes, fruit fields, flowers, and all of them were beautiful, all of them were glorious, but really you should see the artwork and the photographer behind them. I mean, that was the point of selling them for $125. Wasn't just the object, but the artistic eye that was able to capture them and present them in a vivid way. But we know that our praise goes further behind that, to their maker, to their creator, to their designer, to their sustainer, to their providential provider. And so we praise God the Creator for all the wonderful, beautiful, glorious things that He gives and does. And we want God to be glad in His works, not just in His creation, but in those that bear His image especially. And so we're reminded that God can look at the earth and it can tremble like with an earthquake. He can touch the mountain and it will smoke like a volcano. But these are also images of God when He came down in smoke and fire on Mount Sinai to reveal His law to His people. And He manifested Himself in such a powerful way so that they would not sin. So that they would not take Him for granted. So that they wouldn't exchange the Creator for the creation. So they wouldn't abandon their God for the idols. So they wouldn't indulge in sin. And so God reminds us that He is a holy God. And that we are to sing to Him as long as we live. We are to sing praise to our God while we have our being. Because God is most delighted in us when we are most delighted in Him. And that wonderful phrase of John Piper again, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And it's one thing to say thanks before a meal, but it's another thing to praise Him and to adore Him and to love Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength because that's what we were created and made and redeemed to do. And so there's a song that I really love by Phillips, Craig, and Dean that captures the singing of creation, but God's preference for the singing of the saved. And it says, He loves to hear the wind sing as it whistles through the pines on mountain's peaks. And He loves to hear the raindrops as they splash to the ground in a magic melody. He smiles in sweet approval as the waves crash to the rocks in their harmonies. All creation joins in unity to sing to Him majestic symphonies. But His favorite song of all was the song of the redeemed. When lost sinners now made clean, lift their voices loud and strong. When those purchased by His blood lift to Him a song of love, nothing more He'd rather hear nor so pleasing to His ear. That's His favorite song of all. He loves to hear the angels as they sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lamb. 
Heaven's choirs in harmony lift up praises to the great I am. But he lifts his hands for silence when the weakest saved by grace begins to sing. And another ransomed soul sings, I have been redeemed. It's not just melodies and harmonies that capture his attention. It's not just clever lines and phrases that make him stop and listen. But when any heart set free, washed and bought by Calvary begins to sing, that's his favorite song of all, the song of the redeemed. When lost sinners now made clean, lift their voices loud and strong. When those purchased by his blood lift to him a song of love, there's nothing more he'd rather hear, nor so pleasing to his ear, as his favorite song of all, the song of the redeemed. So God wants us to be glad, not merely in the creation, but in the creator. And not merely in the creator, but in our redeemer. Because in redeeming us, he opened our heart to be able to see not just the creation, but the creator. And now we can express him our love and adoration as he deserves, as he demands, and as we are offered to delight in. And not just our songs, not just our actions, but the very meditations of our heart. Lord, let them be pleasing to you. As for me, I shall be glad in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. He longs for a day when the planet is no longer polluted and perverted by sin. When the creation is no longer corrupted by sinners. Did you all see the activist this weekend who threw cans of tomato soup on Vincent van Gogh's wildflowers? And, and I guess the point was that pollution stains beautiful creation or beautiful planet. So we're going to make that point by taking soup cans and throwing them on some of the most valuable and precious paintings in the world. And they desecrate it and they defile it and they pollute it. And so we long for the day when God is going to make a new earth and he is going to purge this earth of sinners and of sin and he is going to make a new heavens and he is going to raise up his redeemed and glorified bodies where we will love him and appreciate and adore him with no more sin intervening between us ever again. And that's our great hope and aspiration. And so we say again, bless the Lord, O my soul. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. James Harriet was the pen name of James White, an Englishman who studied veterinarian surgery in Scotland and then had a 50-year practice almost in Yorkshire. And he began to write tales of his practice in a series of books that then were cast as movies, television series, and plays. Many of you, even if you've not read them, and shame on you if you haven't, <laughs> took his titles that you're probably familiar with. Uh, all things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. They're wonderful, they're delightful, they're great. But you may not know that he got those titles from a children's hymn written by an Irish Anglican who in the mid-19th century wrote a hymn book for children to help them love their Lord and express their praise. Here's how the original goes. Each little flower that opens, each little, little, each little bird that sings, he made their glowing colors, he made their tiny wings. All things bright and beautiful, all things great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. The rich man in his castle, the poor man in his gate, God made them higher lowly and ordered their estate. All things, all things, all things. The purple-headed mountains, the river running by, the sunset in the morning that brightens up the sky. 
the cold wind in the winter, the pleasant summer sun, the ripe fruits in the garden. He made them, every one. The tall trees in the greenwood, the meadows where we play, the rushes by the water, we gather every day. He gave us eyes to see them and lips that we might tell. How great is God Almighty who has made all things well. All things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. So let's praise God, our Creator. Let us enjoy His creation to the full and then express our adoration and thanks and our praise to the Father of lights, the giver of all good things. Praise God, our Creator. Would you pray with me? So Father, we thank you for this beautiful psalm that you have inspired to help us appreciate not just the creation, but the Creator. And so as we enjoy the many good things that you have for us this day, lunches and dinners, family and friends, homes and beds, meals and snacks, drinks and showers, we are so richly blessed. And so we thank you for all these things. Help us at each moment to give a thanks to offer a praise and to offer our hearts again to you for you have made us for this very purpose. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen.